And what a great way to segue into a Friday early afternoon evening. I have um, so excited. I have my co-host Spencer Drake with me, and uh, both of us are so excited to have David Amram on with us, who is such an accomplished, iconic composer, conductor, and um, he's an author. He's authored some books and uh, is going to be doing a new one. And uh, he's just legendary. And that was a piece from a 1960s Splendor in the the Grass. I can't even talk right now. Glass, grass, Splendor in the Grass. And um, what's really beautiful about David's music is it's just, There are so many different things, and he's played with so many amazing musicians, um, legendary bands, you know, and I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about his time with Lionel Hampton and um, Dizzy Gillespie and how he was uh, appointed by Leonard Bernstein as the first composer as a residence for New York Philharmonic in 1966. So now he's one of the most... Um, performed and influential composers of our time. So let me bring him on along with my co-host, Spencer Drake. And we are going to spend some time with David because David's got some gigs coming up. And uh, we've got more music. So, David, welcome to the show. And Spencer, are you there? Yeah, hi. Glad to be on. <laughs> yeah, hi. You're so cute. David, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Incredible, well, incredible stuff, all, David. Yeah. First, I want to say hi we, to uh, you, Spencer, and, and thank you both yeah. for having me on the show. Oh, and all your listeners who, who might wonder what that was, that was the theme from the film Splendor in the Grass with Natalie Wood and Warren Brady's first wow. film that he ever made way back in 1960, directed by Lee <laughs> Kazan. And that recording was made many years later in 1978. And Jerry really? Dodgian, the great saxophone player, was playing saxophone, and I played piano. And wow. Was a wonderful, wonderful bass player and drummer. And we just did that rather than having a symphony play it, which I did in, in, the, in the film score mm-hmm. and I orchestrated and conducted the symphony myself. That mm-hmm. was a, a jazz version, which mm-hmm. meant that we used the same theme and the same counterpoint. But in the middle parts, we were what's called improvising for those of your listeners, which means that you're making up music based on the harmonies of what the song was constructed from. And the reason I mention that is that the, in box time, the composers all were also players and also improvisers. Mm-hmm. So their music was always, you might say, very musical and connected to the world that they lived in and drawn from the world that they came from. So in a lot of my symphonic music and my chamber music and my operas and when I go out and play a jazz gig or a Beautiful. folk festival or when I work with Jack Kerouac and played or when I'm writing chamber music, I'm really always coming mm-hmm. from the same place of trying to find notes that are really say something and make the people who are playing and listening feel something. So it's not really complicated. It's basically what Lester Young, the great saxophonist, told all people who played for him. He would say, tell 
your story and all of your listeners. Every person on earth has a story, a heritage, a family, a history, and something special that's happened to them. And one of the big things in in the arts is to learn how to tell your story. And that's what I still try to do as I approach my 89th birthday. And I try to encourage all the young people, not just musicians or composers, but anybody and everybody to be able to find a way to tell their story because it's always interested and there's only one you. Mm. That's so beautiful, isn't that, Spencer? What a great I, what I a tell you, analogy. Uh, Judith just... and I were down, um, Holly, uh, Judith and I were mm-hmm. down um, in Tribeca, and David had an event. Mm-hmm. Remember, David? And we met you, and it was oh, sure. a really nice event out in the open. Wow. With some really great musicians. Uh, with a, It was hooked up with the Cornelia Cafe uh, thing, right, uh, David? Yeah, it was called Cornelia Street in exile because mm. the Cornelius Street mm-hmm. Cafe, I played the first Monday of every month for oh, 14 years in, in Greenwich Village. And because of the fact that the rents were so high, it would be impossible mm-hmm. for anybody to pay them. The landlord forced Robin Hirsch, who's like a saint in New York, to have to abandon wow. his place. So I said to the audience, well, we don't remember who the landlord of Great Greenwich Village authors O. Henry or playwright uh, mm-hmm. Eugene O'Neill or the or the author Edna St. Vincent Millay was like. We don't know who the landlords were 100, 150 years ago, but we remember who they were because of what they gave us through their work. Exactly. So rather than dwelling on, yeah. on urban urban changes and inequities and thinking of the negative stuff, why celebrate that? Why not celebrate the spirit? So we were right down there in the meatpacking district, which is now <laughs> oh, being wow. gentrified. And fortunately, yep. the people in the meatpacking just have decided that instead of, uh, you know, building a statue or something, they'd have a concert honoring Robin's place. So, so we, it was Cordelia Street in exile. They had the great Art, Arturo O'Farrell, came and played a, a wonderful French singer and a pe- people on stilts oh, really? and, and all Ooh, kinds of artists neat. and singers. It was amazing. And musicians. Really it was a whole it. big free festival. Really? It was so much fun and so much spirit that was there. And I mentioned that because as hard as times may seem to be, one of the nice things about music and art and poetry and theater is that it always lifts up your spirits. And mm. that's a thing we have to look for in life and try to do as as people and parents and artists to try to go for that positive, beautiful part. And Miles Davis said it best in that great 1959 classic song, So What? I always wondered, why did Miles, such a sophisticated <laughs> guy, give such a dumb title to a great song? And I realized it wasn't such a dumb title. He was saying, well, this always been a mess. It is a mess, and it will always be a mess to an extent. But to that part mm-hmm. that's a mess, you say, well, that's a mess, but so what? And you look for the beauty part and concentrate mm-hmm. on that. And that's what I try to do, and that's what I wow. I can do to encourage the next generation of people, not just musicians, but anybody, not to give up, to tell your story, to work hard, to try to improve, and to celebrate life. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know so what, David, Spencer, I, I thought... David, I'm figuring um, you have an incredible the, amount of oh. stories. Oh, he well, does. Well, I do. You, can't you tell? My, my big problem is not, is not, <laughs> no. not just on a radio show, but in general, not to have people's eyes glaze over and fall asleep. So I try... <laughs> I try to keep my sentences down to bearable length and not just be a big Aww. bag of hot air because we already right, suffer yeah. from global warming. Well, you're very well-spoken. So <laughs> yeah, you Very really well-spoken, yeah. David. True. And, True. you know... Um, well, thank you. You know what I, you know what I wanted to do uh, besides talking just about, you know, the pieces that you've done is, like, a little bit about how you got into music and, and who you played with, and, and let's kind of do a little bit of a timeline thing here so our listeners can know a little bit more. Yeah, you, you're good at telling oh. stories, so let's hear it. Oh, This will be a good way well, for you I'm... to practice for your book. Your book. <laughs> that you want to get to do. So you said, well, when I start it. <laughs> oh, well, well, uh, uh, I always ask, how did you begin in, in music? And when I was six, my father bought me a bugle, and I ripped mm. open that box. You're and kidding. Said, wow, I saw that shiny bugle <laughs> oh with the sawdust. God. And then he picked the bugle out of the box before I could do anything and started <laughs> playing it himself for about a half an oh, hour. Wow, that's funny. And that, when I was a parent, I realized I started to do the same thing. I said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember you had that done to me, so my kids called me out. But, uh-huh. but anyway, I, I he finally handed it to me, and I went, beep. And I said, wow, I hit a Aww. note. And I just got wow. that terrific rush, like, holy cow. Wow. I didn't know I was making music, but mm-hmm. I, that was the beginning. And then we had a little piano at our farm. I lived at a farm, and we lived at a place in Feasterville, Pennsylvania. And uh, mm-hmm. I had the chance in, in the school, even though it was a public school during the Depression, all the kids were encouraged to take an instrument from the school and bring it home to practice and then bring it back to school. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine in 2019 that a rural community during the Great Depression would, would have anything like that, but they did. And that's why a lot of us who work in music, Wynton Marsalis, so many other people, hope we can contribute something to the idea of arts, music education. Because it really gives you, without you knowing it, a chance to get a work ethic and do things with and for others. It's it's a wonderful thing, whether or not you're ever going to be a musician. Because I remember my father said to me, well, David, you know, I was up on my tractor. I had seven acres. I was allowed to grow oh, stuff wow. myself. He said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, I'd like to be a farmer. He said, well, that's impossible. I have to have a little <laughs> in addition to that. He said, what else? I said, well, I'd like to be a composer and a classical composer and really? a jazz musician. And he really? said, that's wow. worse. Wow. <laughs> so I, I picked, he made me aware Funny. that I picked the two Worst career choice possible, <laughs> and I pursued both. I don't. I don't have a farm anymore, but I work in music. I pursued my two career death wishes to the max, and I encourage <laughs> everyone else to do the same thing. Because if you feel you were put here to do something and you love doing it, then regardless mm-hmm. of what you have to do to pay your rent, you should pursue those dreams and never give up trying. 
That's the best advice. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm about to hit 89, and I'm still doing it. And my hope is, you know, when younger people see someone turning almost going to be 90 in a year, still enjoying and grateful for what they do, they might say, well, even though my career counselor tells me I'm going to be washed up at the age of 24, maybe I'll give it another <laughs> two years anyway. Right. And if that happens, then I will have made some contribution, I hope. You made a lot well, of contributions. Well, you have made a contribution, God. definitely. And mm-hmm. what about all the amazing people that you've played with over the years? I mean, come on now. You've seen some amazing well, people. Well, I've, I've just been lucky, and I've, I've just stumbled and fumbled through life, which is how I'm on your program, because it turns out Spencer Drake and I knew Bernie Stolber, who was kind of like a recording genius, amazing guy. Yeah. And when we found that out, that we had that friend in common, that's the way my whole life has been. So when wow. I began as a classical composer, Dimitri mm-hmm. Metropolis, the great conductor of the New York Philharmonic, when he was conducting the Minnesota Orchestra, when we were living, still living at the farm, we were down at the shore. And he came by with a friend of my mother had gone to school with in the beginning of the century. And Metropolis was his friend. He just came down to the beach, and he heard me practicing the French horn. They said, your boys played the horn on Sunday. He's serious. And I was, <laughs> I'd written this piece. I was 14 years old. I had written this horn trio based on the Brahms horn trio. And he looked at it. He said, you're good, he said, but you must learn to modulate. And he looked at my music, <laughs> oh, wow. and he encouraged me. And, wow. and he That's great. was noted for encouraging everybody that crossed his path. So that gave me the the hope that I I could try to continue to be a composer. And I was also playing jazz. And in 1951, Dizzy Gillespie called, had a friend who was a bass player that I knew, and he wanted to have his band come down when he was living in playing in Baltimore, came out of my basement apartment just to hang out, spent the, his whole band crashed there at my little place. The couch and the bed were full, so I sat on How the floor cool. and just sat in the chair, spent the whole night telling me about Pan-African music. I just lucked out. He wow. saw I was eager and enthusiastic, and I met Charlie Parker in 1952. Wow. The wow. same way, just at my oh basement my apartment. I kept bumping into these amazing people. And Jeez. I always wondered why they would even take the time to even say hello to me. And I realized that mm-hmm. they saw I was eager and enthusiastic and could say please and thank you and paid attention. So they shared with me what they had learned in the same way. And that's what I try to do with every person that crosses my path. And all the people that I've mm-hmm. continued with since then, when I worked in the theater, I was living next door to the director of the Howard Theater in in Washington, and he heard me practicing the French horn and said, "You know, we you should do some music for this production of Alcestis." So I began writing for the theater. And when, when I w- went in the army, I was just fortunate enough to go overseas and learn different languages and learn music. And when I came back, and moved, I was playing at a bar in 1954, and Gunther Schuller, the great French horn player and composer 
loved jazz and had played a Miles record, and he heard a French horn playing in this bar, so this soldier playing, and he mm-hmm. met me and encouraged me to come back and study composition in New York, which I did. And then the third week, Leonard Feather, whom I met when I was in the Army, took me down to hear Bud Powell and Charles Mingus, who was the bass player, came over, and Leonard introduced me, and Mingus invited me to play with him. So my third week in New York, I was playing with people that I dreamed, I hope that someday I might even wow. get to see or hear. And I worked for starting with Shakespeare in the Park with Joe Papp because oh. they needed somebody to write the music, and I only lived a block away from him in the, what was then called the Lower East Side. And Woody Guthrie, I met the same month because a friend of mine, Ahmed Bashir, who would, was a friend of Mingus, was a friend of Woody's wife, Annika, and I just, and 50 years later, I wrote my symphony commissioned by his children. No career oh. counselor could plan that stuff. And I met Jack Kerouac the same way to bring your own bottle party. And most of the, I guess you might say, famous or iconic people, I just stumbled into, or they would ask me as their 10th choice to do something and I tried to do better than expected and I still try to do that mm-hmm. and I only mm-hmm. mention that because mm-hmm. I think you know we're so convinced that you have to have some kind of a, a master plan and networking and do everything in an organized fashion and the real key I think is to be open to work hard and to try to do better than is expected and try to eliminate all the negative things that we're told are supposed to make you a big winner and actually can end up killing you spiritually and mm-hmm. even physically. Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. being respectful and generous and considerate are not a sign of a character defect. So there's all those old-time values. That's why I love playing Fire Maid with Willie Nelson, which I just did for the, I guess, about the 26th time because oh. you, you, awesome. can't fool, you can't fool your your partner, you can't fool your kids, you can't fool the band, and you can't fool farmers. And being brought up mm-hmm. on a farm, that what you might call hick DNA continues to save me because you can somehow always in the back of your mind want to keep it for real and something mm-hmm. always tells you if it's something isn't for real and if you're not careful you can lose that completely and and sometimes in our society we're we're told to take the shortcuts and dump on other people and not care whether or not you know get out of town fast before you get caught and the reality is there aren't any shortcuts you just have to work hard and and try to do better than is expected. But I'm still, I'm still trying to get that together as I approach the big eight nine. Oh, congratulations! Listen to David. him. No, really, Spencer, is that amazing? I know. Wow. It's incredible. He, well, and I David sounds younger. younger. <laughs> with the people that I hung out with, I would even make it till thirty, because a lot of the people <laughs> that I was with were not what you would call. Health oriented. <laughs> right. No, I got it. After my 300 friend died, I said, maybe all that stuff oh, isn't no. good for you. And so we're right I go there with the, you. Yeah. 
still so happening what I, what now. Yeah. Well, when I do programs for young people, which I do all the time, and they come out with a big tray of drugs because they say, oh, that's a real hip cat. He do this and that person. I say, you know, I appreciate your hospitality. I said, I don't do any of that stuff. I said, I, I'm living proof you could be just as crashing a boar, stone cold sober, as stoned out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, is great. that is great. <laughs> So I, I try I without that. without sounding judgmental because I've done everything wrong that you could do. I say you know maybe you could save yourself some time and just try to do what's supposed <laughs> to be right. And That's amazing. Are, it might be right because it's been right for the last few thousand years. So why you know try to wow. change? change I, Holly, I got to ask David a question. Um, on the list, which is enormous, of the people you play with, I hit the name of Allen Ginsberg. What did you do with Allen? Well, I was, I was a, a real good friend of Jack Kerouac's, mm-hmm. right. the engine that right. pulled the train. And Allen yeah. was a very smart guy and, a, and a very talented. And he was a old, dear friend of Jack Kerouac's. So, uh, Jack had so many friends. So I, I spent most of the time with Alan because he was always hanging out with Jack. And actually, I en- enjoyed being with Alan because we always argued about everything. And I didn't really <laughs> appreciate almost anything that he did. But but I, ad- I admired his courage and his intellect and, he, and his generosity. And yeah. uh, But Jack Kerouac was really the person who, uh, in fact, uh, next week I'll be going up to... Lowell celebrates Kerouac, which oh, is great. in his hometown, which is a whole thing. The little town that he came from oh, wow. has a whole festival honoring him. Really? And his, That's great. And, and the wow. amazing thing was that, that all these, he died in 1969, so they're having a 50th anniversary. And we did the first of wow. the jazz poetry readings in 1957, the first public ones. And mm-hmm. Now, 50 years after his death, instead of being a, a beatnik of the past, which he never was in his, for a second in his life, he's now appreciated by a new generation as mm-hmm. a terrific writer and an artist. Mm-hmm. And we used to walk down the streets yeah. when he was considered to be a one-hit wonder, and people said he was just a speed typist. He said, I'm an author. Mm-hmm. I'm an, with that Lowell <laughs> accent, I'm an author. Why don't they read my books? And we did that film, Pull My Daisy, together in 1959, which Robert Frank made. Robert just passed away, great photographer. And when when we did those things, it was always spontaneous. We scarcely ever rehearsed. But he was always paying attention to other people and also tremendously well-read, tremendously hard worker and the public picture of him was just sort of supposed to be this someone in Time Magazine said he was just a slob at a typewriter and the reality was he was this brilliant intellectual smart person that was very kind a devout Catholic lived with his mother and was patriotic so he didn't fit in at all to the image of of the of the hip beatnik author that he was which Mm -hmm. he never considered himself to be. He was Jack Kerouac was really extraordinary and I wrote 
my flute concerto that I wrote for Sir James Galway, the second movement was dedicated, used to French-Canadian folk songs that Jack used to sing to me. And he has a beautiful thing where he loved Bach as much as he loved Charlie Parker. He appreciated all musics, all peoples, and all things of beauty. So I've been very lucky to know some really terrific people mm-hmm. who never, also never gave up. And um, I tell kids, you know, very often, Holly, that the only thing in our culture worse than obscurity is recognition, mm-hmm. because then you're told, now you have to move to a different level. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not careful, oh, totally. you yeah. give up your friends, your family, everything you believed in. And you you move into someone else's cesspool until you're yeah. not doing that well anymore, and then suddenly you're not you're not even invited to be in their cesspool anymore, and you've lost everything that you came from in the first place. So people like Jack never forgot who they were and where they were going and what they were oh. trying to do, and even in his darkest darkest moments, he still remained a, a wonderful writer and now, now people read his books and they're inspired not to imitate him but to be themselves and to tell their story mm-hmm. exactly exactly yeah. you know I wanted to mention really quickly a couple things um, first part I want to talk about is uh, letting everyone know if you tuned in late, the show will be available as a podcast on iTunes afterwards and also as a download on Red Velvet Media. Um, And the second thing was um, you mentioned that you did uh, chamber music and you also did um, opera and stuff like that. You know, I'm a huge fan of Maria Callas. Yeah. Um, oh, me too. What's she fantastic? Callis. Oh my God, amazing, amazing, mm. and chamber music's my thing. I love. I have classical music playing at my house pretty much twenty four seven. I don't know why, but I just it just it's like it kind of calms me down. Um, but you know, Holly, you know, I want to come in they, here on that because. When I first started in, in music, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit I was going to be a music designer, my first albums I ever bought were classical. I mean, I really got mm-hmm. off on classical music, and I have a, a lot of classical albums now, which I hear now and then. But, you know, yeah, it's such I a love big Maria you know, influence. And then, and then I found out that a lot of the famous uh, rock musicians uh, that Judith and I work with had a base mm-hmm. of classical music uh, studying or whatever. Um, so that's, totally. that's so important. So what you're bringing up is yeah, a very no. important thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, for me, classical music was being played in my house my whole life because I was a ballerina my whole life. So it's mm. like for me, it's like hearing that music, it's like it was always playing in the background. <laughs> and then someone would say, oh, remember you danced to this? Oh, you need to practice, you know? And, <laughs> I'm just like, okay, whatever. But um, well, it, what I – go ahead. I'm sorry, David. Well, what were you going to say? No, 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 boy, I, I think it's because it all comes from music that's built to last. And when I was mm-hmm. – yeah. Life Magazine inter- interviewed yep. me a long time ago, and I mentioned 
mm-hmm. you know, in, in the interviews after that, the manager of the New York Philharmonic, after I was in the Life magazine, they just said, wow, man, this guy that we got to be sort of like a coffee boy really has. <laughs> Inter- interesting. So I was, inter- I was interviewed by someone else, and and, and the, one of the people, the management of the orchestra said, look, they said, you mentioned Guillaume de Macho and Palestrina, all the composers before Bach, and then up to Bach, and then the Baroque composers, and Tchaikovsky uh-huh. and the Nationalist 19th century, and, and then mm-hmm. Charles Ives and George Gershwin and Aaron Copeland, oh, he said, yeah. and Prokofiev, yeah. he said, that then you mentioned uh, Louis Armstrong and, and Big Spider Peck and Betty Goodman and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thelonious Monk and Disney. Wow. He said, how can you yeah. play barroom entertainers with the treasures of European <laughs> masterworks? And I said, well, oh, wow. the, venue, the venue doesn't determine the music. It's the music that determines the music. Bach right. wrote the Brandenburg Concertos mm-hmm. because he had a, a club date orchestra <laughs> to play. <him. laughs> and oh, wow. someone, the Margrave of Brandenburg, who is the, the local big shot in town, <laughs> said, yeah. we need some music for a dinner party. It's called <laughs> music, table music. So <laughs> Bach wrote, his, wrote some pieces for his club date orchestra. That's funny. And I said to him, I said, if you go and researched in all the libraries. That's 1966. They didn't have people didn't have PCs or, or Macs back then, so you couldn't no. look it up online. But I said, if you go to all the music libraries, I'll bet you could never find what the menu was for that night at the Margrave of Brandenburg. But we know what the dinner music was because Bach mm. wrote those six Brandenburg concertos. I said, so it's wow. not the venue. I said, what 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 that music that you call barroom music which was played mm-hmm. in bar rooms and mm-hmm. chamber music and classical music have in common is purity of intent and an exquisite choice of notes. And the manager or the person, one of the managers of the orchestra looked at me and I could see in his eyes, Leonard Bernstein sure chose a turkey for the first composer in the <laughs> history of the New York Philharmonic. Thank That's heavens he's only here for a year. That's funny. And, and you know, I I think purity of intent and an exquisite choice of notes, all music is hopefully that lasts, is built to last, has that. And it's just like different languages. There are many, many different languages, but they're all saying the same thing. I can, so I, I got to ask something, in... David. I got to ask you um I, I used when I was younger I would come into New York and John Cage uh, in his loft would have different this is the thing I want to ask you because I, I think maybe I'm wrong there's a link between you and John Did you ever meet John Cage? Oh sure. Okay. Yeah, he was fantastic. Well, he was a brilliant guy. And in a time when music got so complicated that you needed three degrees in trigonometry to figure out what it was that no one could play or listen to, uh, he's kind of simplified things, Uh you know, Uh and said, well, you you can even have what's known as silence. And, of course, when you hear Thelonious Monk or you hear Screaming Jay Hawkins or you hear Beethoven, suddenly Uh you'll say, whoa. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. There's a, a silence, and it gives you a chance to think. And, and, and he was, John Cage was yeah. sort of like a great philosopher. 
And I yeah. think it influenced my music's like totally different than anything because I was I was based on old traditional Jewish music and jazz and Elizabethan mm-hmm. music, which are the mm-hmm. things that touched my heart and I guess well, formed mm-hmm. you know, what what I try to do. So my mine is completely different, but I appreciated what he contributed, and also when when people. Uh, Criticized Philip Glass and her pathologically jealous. Oh, great Philip Glass! So he came. He came along, and when everybody was writing stuff that was so hard, nobody could even figure out what it was about, and fighting mm-hmm. with each other, he came along as a cab driver, and wrote some pieces, <laughs> and showed that a composer could stand on their own feet, be a member of society, and make people feel good, and employ musicians to work. And just be a person contributing something. So I mm-hmm. would always admired him for the doors that he opened for mm. everybody to again oh, yeah, tell their story. So the yeah, I got to tell you something. Um, what you're talking you know, about, uh, Woody Allen has a movie called, I believe it's Cassandra's Crossing. It's a mystery. And the, the whole soundtrack is Philip Glass. It's amazing. Absolutely an amazing soundtrack. You know, I, th- I think, you know, ev- everybody has something to, co- to contribute, and I found that his music for films is, is really effective. And believe it or not, uh, the Million Dollar Baby, Clint Eastwood, yep. well, I guess he's playing with one finger. There's certain mm-hmm. parts where he's mm-hmm. just playing the piano. Lenny Niehaus orchestrated most of his music, was, and Lenny's like a fabulous Fabulous musician's mm-hmm. musician, but when mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood was just playing by himself, just doing that little tinkling, really, boy, that really fit the movie so well. I said, "Man, that was like." Yeah, genius. I remember Bob Dylan came to my right. place sometime and he said, "I'd like you to play piano on my record." He said, "Here's what I'm doing." He sang <laughs> me the song, and I said, "Bob, you know," he said, "I'll play the piano." I said, "Man, what you're doing for that song is like perfect." Said you don't have to be a pianist or be. I said you're just you, but the way that fits the song, nobody could do anything better than that. And he ended up doing it himself. I would have loved to have played that. And we did make a fact. Oh sure. We we were on a record together when Allen Ginsberg made his his debut as a as as a musician, never done anything, and he just started right at the top. And and over a twenty year period, actually got to be good. Reading his poetry with music, but the very first thing we did together, I remember it, it was Dylan was playing, and he was very supportive of trying to to help out Alan. But in in the sense that you know, I don't expect everybody to be doing what I'm doing, and at the same time, people who expect me to do what everybody else has already done, I understand, but. I have something that I feel in my heart is what I've got to contribute as part of my story that I hope will be helpful. I've just finished up the first movement of this piece, which is going to be for the Harvard Wind Ensemble. Oh, wow. And I just spoke to the conductor on the way up to Lowell Celebrates Kerouac. I'm going by Harvard. They're going to be playing this, just a short first movement mm-hmm. fanfare. And, uh, the conductor just said to me today, Mark Olson, he said, you know, the kids in the 
the students really like this piece. I said, wow, that's the greatest thing a composer could hear. Because if, if musicians like your music, chances are other musicians will, and you'll be contributing oh, yeah. stuff into the repertoire. Yeah, that's, true. that's what Bernstein true. told me in 1966. He said, David, in his wonderful voice, he said, your job as a composer is not only to please to please yourself, you're supposed to contribute something to the repertoire. And in 1966, the advice <laughs> to a composer was you have to set the piano on fire and throw it out the window so that you can say you don't like America's foreign policy and get a bigger review in the New York Times. Now, the New York Times can hardly review classical music anymore because they're all arts. Things are shrinking up. And a lot of composers, mm-hmm. when I go to schools and they show young composers, they're not all writing the same piece. People are doing their own stuff from the most far out complex to the simplest, and they're all doing different things. And I see so many gifted young improvisers, players, folk musicians, jazz musicians, classical composers, dancers, actors, writers. Unbelievable. Everybody is so much better informed. And with YouTube and with the electronics, it's possible to find those needles in the haystack and to become a needle mm-hmm. in your own haystack. And that only means that there's a chance for a lot of enlightenment to be shared. And that's a mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful thing to see. So I think that regardless of what else is music is, is advancing and people are so much better at it that eventually the society will catch up to what the musicians and the artists already can do. And that means in 200 years, everything will be cool. Right. <laughs> you know what well, I'm meantime, getting from? In the meantime, no, we're go supposed ahead, to be. David. Yeah, and on the, in the meantime, we're supposed to be, as Dizzy Gillespie told me on his 70th birthday, he said, man, I met you, you were a 19-year-old hick. Now you got gray hair. <laughs> oh, it's God. It's time to put something back into the pot. So it's our gig. As professionally older people, which I guess you are when you're almost 90, our gig is to put something <laughs> back in the pot because that's how we all got nourished in the first place. And that's doing that amazing. is much more rewarding than staring yeah, in true. the mirror. So right. rather than look at your wrinkles, you can uh, check out other people and not only see how they look, but how they are and what they would like to become and and try to encourage that and in the process of doing that it's good for your health mm-hmm. and you can stay creative and, and pretty happy yourself. That's very nice. You yes, know, exactly right. I, I think, I want to say something here. David, you know, talking to you about your whole, what you've done and, and your accomplishments and your future accomplishments, you have one common thread and that's really about a spiritual sense of Honoring others' faith and really um, letting them create their own feelings, and you have respect for that. And I have to tell you that we've interviewed so many um, musicians, and and I mean from all different genres, but 
I'm feeling here with you, and it's not because you're going to be 89 or anything like that. It's because just your take on everything is just coming from such a spiritual place. You have a true appreciation of someone's creativity, and, and you're very open about it. And I think that's beautiful. And and do you agree, Spencer? I mean, really, seriously, oh, this is what do. I'm Holly, hearing. Exactly, beautiful words, uh, Holly. Uh, you know? Exactly, exactly true, Holly. You know? Well, thank I'm you. I'm totally hearing that. that that's what I try. It's a, it's a daily struggle. <laughs> it's just daily, a daily well, struggle. David, you're gonna to, you're gonna be you're not, gonna be remembered later, years, hundreds of years from now. As the one person that let someone be who they wanted to be and encouraged someone to be the best they could and oh, and not well, be you know, every, and not be afraid. Everything see, everything that I have comes from people that I really admired and still admire who were uh-huh. that way to me and to others. And and uh-huh. I've 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 like all of us met a lot of people who aren't that way. Remotely, and they're invariably a drag to be around. Mm-hmm. D- don't seem to be very happy, and don't have usually much longevity. And, and I always think of, uh, you know, when I was a history major in college, they said Alexander the Great, at the age of 26, buried his head in his hands. Because he had no more worlds to conquer. In other words, oh, wow. the full the full greed ahead, not the full speed ahead. Damn the torpedoes! The favorite, but the, I call it full greed ahead, and did him mm-hmm. in <laughs> prematurely. <laughs> he was he, he was amazing. already wiped. He was already terminally bummed out at twenty six. And if you yeah, if you just oink out too much, you end up with the gout, you know, so somehow we have to have to try to find a, see if there's, there's a higher road, and I think everybody has that in them, and I've been around so many places in the world, so many places where people you would think compared to the blessings that we have in this country, have almost nothing, and I met people, a noble lot of people in this country who you could say the same of, who were so nice and so civilized and so warm and so good to their families and so good to other people and so generous that when I see that that full greed ahead, I say, well, that's one way to look at it, but that's not the only way. And mm-hmm. usually you find this, this, there's a lot of other ways to approach stuff and 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 make an effort to do that. And as as I mentioned, it's a daily struggle not to become a a full time swine, especially if you're told now is your chance to really dump on people. You have to oh, wow. understand that that's mm-hmm. other people telling you now you can be that way, yeah. and say wait a minute, I spent my whole life trying not to be that way, so why <laughs> give mm-hmm. up? That? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. True. You you hold on to what you really believe 
and what you and what your intentions are, your beautiful intentions in your heart. And you know, I wanted to say real quick too. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're going to be playing some places, and uh, I want to give out your website. It's David, and it's Amram A M R A M dot com. And uh, David. Tell us a little bit about the gigs you have coming up, because I know one you're playing near me soon, so I'll be there. But um, oh, good, Yo, yeah. It's, it's called it's called yeah. Symphony uh, Symphony Silicon Valley of all things, mm-hmm. and it's in San Jose, California. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking probably mm-hmm. I'll be around. We're you're close to Sonoma. It's not that far from there, and I'll see a lot of my friends from. San Francisco and other places in that part of California are going to be coming. And the wonderful conductor, Joanne Folletta, is going to be mm-hmm. conducting a piece of mine called Partners for Violin, Cello, and Orchestra. And Beautiful. So I wanted to show that the two soloists, rather than wanting to kill each other, could be musical partners because music mm. is all about partnership. So each of the three movements I decided to dedicate each movement to a set of partners I was lucky enough to know. And the first was Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. The mm. second movement for Billy Holiday and Lester Young. And wow. the third for Machito and yeah. Celia Cruz. And I was oh, lucky wow. enough in the 50s to know all of them. And they were all older, terrific people mm. who were not only nice to me, but encouraged every person across their path to try to, right. you know, do what they could do in music and in life. And and each each movement is based on a genre, not of the stuff that they did, because you don't need the symphony. They already did it perfectly. But the spirit and mm-hmm. the culture of, of Woody's music coming from Oklahoma roots and Native American music and old Appalachian music and mm-hmm. Pete Seeger's love of, of European and American roots folk music, second movement of the mm-hmm. music of the Sanctified Church and Blues and Jazz that Billy Holiday and Lester Young put into the American songbook and created that magical jazz, and then the genius of Afro-Cuban music from the 30s and 40s that Machito and Celia Cruz championed, all that great stuff. Each movement has a genre, honoring the genre that they came out of and gave to us. So it was kind of nice you know, to be able to, and I was able to, to write it for two wonderful young players who play in the Dallas Symphony, and they're not going to be, mm-hmm. and they're going to be performing it with some different orchestras that already have played it. So it's really exciting. And the Symphony Silicon Valley in San Jose, they did the world premiere of my Woody Guthrie Symphony, This Land, and they also did my piano concerto that John Nakamura played. And so it's mm-hmm. a big thrill, and. Of course, in 1948, I worked. I used to drive a truck right through that part of town when I was a carpenter and a plumber's helper. And now, all these years later, to go and back now look at you. and hear the and hear the symphony <laughs> playing my music is a mind blowing oh, wow. thrill that you can't. It's oh, hard to to imagine. That's great. And, and it's that you way know, every, everywhere that I go, you know. And that's great. I remember so many. You know, it's so nice. That's why it's nice to be able to try to, you know, just to keep developing in your life and not to forget where you came from and and where you wanted yeah. to go. No, and you're most humble. You're very humble. Yeah, mo- well, I got plenty to be humble about because I knew some fantastic people that are so much better 
when I was listening to that uh, Splendor in the Grass that I heard Jerry improvise and playing, I said, my Lord. I was I, I was proud of my piano playing because I didn't get in the way and wreck what he was doing. But I was when I was listening to that, I said, boy, am I lucky to know that guy and to have played <laughs> with him. Yeah. And I would say that that's not being humble. That's just being realistic, you know, if you're around some terrific Yeah, people, absolutely. You try to... You know, your pronunciation. i got to ask you something. You did a score for the war, On the Waterfront. On, it was on Broadway. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Letterburst, I did the classic film, and they, they did exactly, it on Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's what I want to ask about and, and originally, that was a play mm-hmm. that Bud Schulberg had written oh, wow. as a theater piece right, before the it was a play, film. Right, right. And all of that music, including Splendor in the Grass, Manchurian Candidate, the score for On the Waterfront, the theater score that I wrote, it finally came out. One of the ones, the first film I ever did in 1956 with Cecil Taylor playing piano on it, that just came out 60 mm. years, 60 some years later. Wow. Uh, wow. And I, I, I mentioned that not to brag or complain, no, but for no. those listeners who were told, well, I did this three months ago, and nobody likes it, so I must really be a, be worthless. <laughs> some of my stuff, some of my things now, which are which are being played and celebrated, uh, they, in New York City, they just did a whole thing about chamber music of pieces I'd written for the Village Trip Ooh. Festival, and, and uh, some of those pieces, my part of my piano sonata and violin sonata, I wrote that in 1960. And I was listening. I said, really? man, that cat was that cat was talented. I was you know, yeah. I was like six fifty uh, nine so years special. ago. It still sounds good. So John Keats, the great yep. English poet, nineteenth said, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. So <laughs> if you're a composer, mm. you, and, and when I did those film scores, when that when these mm-hmm. came out, people said, That doesn't sound like movie music. I said, It's not supposed to, it was music for a movie. <laughs> and, what it, and it was the best I could do, and now I don't have to apologize. And when people hear that, then they realize that I, I put as much loving care in that as I did when I was writing and when I am writing my symphonies and chamber music. And the reason why I didn't stay in Hollywood after that and I was offered all this stuff was because they said, well, when I said I couldn't do that good a job, and orchestrated, conducted, choose the musicians, and write well for the film, and do other things that I love to do. They said, well, that's why you have your ghostwriters, your orchestrators, and your staff. I said, I don't use Mm -hmm. ghostwriters, staff. I orchestrate my own music. I'm a composer. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me like I was a sword sword maker. And I said, well, you know, if I went for it, I was tempted because I said, I'd make more money in my in one year than anybody I knew did in their lifetime. But I said, you know, uh-huh. if I was lucky, five years down the line, I'd be the ghostwriter for the next David Amram when they got sick of me. So I figured I'd take oh. the long, the long hopeless path. And I lived in New York when they still had rent control, and I had an eighty-five dollar a month apartment in the village. So I said, man, I think I'm going to say adios. To the glitterati, and I went back, and I'm still doing that all these years later. And I'm glad that I made those dumb choices because it turned out that I've had and still have a terrific life. And I encourage other people 
to follow the career death wishes to the max if they feel they were here to do something that they really want to do. And my lawyer was furious. He said, you can do all that classical stuff, jazz later. I said, man, there is no later in life. <laughs> Charlie Parker said, now is the time. Was he ever right? Well, you know, my life, no, I got know, favorite. There's a similarity what you're talking about, because in my life, for some intuitive reason, I picked design to get into. And then I floated. Bernard started me in my career. You know, literally someone mentioned, you've got to go to ESP Disc. There's a, a person I got to introduce you to. And then I met Bernard. And Bernard didn't pay me hardly anything, but he gave me a life that I was – uh, you know, now I'm, I don't know if you know that I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with my partner Judith, recognized amazingly with our work. But, but Bernard started me, you know, and he, um, the thing about uh, Bernard was he was so experimental, you know, and he believed in um, free form music and whatever you did, you know what I mean? He was so emotional about that. And, uh, but he started me in my career, I learned a lot from him. You know, I learned a lot. Yeah, and you should tell mm-hmm. you should tell your listeners it's Bernard Stolman was the was it is. Yeah, Bernard, Bernard Stolman. Stolman. Right? And yeah. and Bernard I, I, yeah. he was a he was a gifted person and he meant well. He throw people in the studio that fought with each other sometimes, but he had a good heart. <laughs> and know. right, right. And then no, he, and there's stories that go off the wall. Uh, Holly had Bernard on on a show. Um, but that he started yeah, my life. Yeah, we became really you know, good friends. He started my friends. life in design. So he's you know. a great guy. Great yeah, guy. Yeah, he was fantastic. He was, he was, he and, was and, a good guy. Yeah. When Dizzy Gillespie couldn't get a recording contract, when they mm-hmm. said for the 200th time that jazz was dead, unfortunately, the, the jazz never became Dr. Kevorkians. All the Dr. Kevorkians that kept saying jazz is dead uh, couldn't. Well, they have a constitutional right to say what they feel. Fortunately, the people that love it and the people who play it uh, did not accept the, the assisted suicide, and it ain't is more alive now than ever. Anyway, Dizzy couldn't get a record contract, and he played. He made a record for Bernie, and oh, he really? said, "Man, mm-hmm. said, uh, oh, oh yeah," he said, "Man, he said the guy's crazy, but he really <laughs> loves music." <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great. And I always you know, loved him, and I, I'll never forget insane. the one time That's I went crazy. to the post office, and I saw Bernie, who was there, who was this guy making all these records, standing there, mailing out a whole bunch of the records himself <laughs> at the post That's office. That's great. Was, right, right. I said, boy, he he never gave up. He was terrific no. and very creative. He had a good heart, and he and refused to give in, because Bernard would tell me stories like, CBS wants to buy my catalog, and I'm not going to give it to them. You know, he told me all these. He never wanted to give his catalog to the commercial area. You know, he really had a thing about keeping it in a pure form, you know, and hopefully Mm -hmm. it would survive that way. And, um, you know, that that was his thing. But, you know, the label now, uh, I, I got invited to an event they had down there. It's the same music. I mean, they still keep on that. Free flow, I call it like experimental uh, way out. Stuff. You know, you know, David, that way out stuff. I mean, all those great musicians I used to meet, like Bob mm-hmm. James, right? Pharaoh Sanders, I met, and I worked on their first first albums. I was really honored. And these guys started off free form, as you know, free free non structure, and then later they may have structure or not. But that's how Bob James, yeah. especially, right?
Bob James oh, yes. went to Tappanzee, right? But he 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 started very free form. People don't know that some unless you're mm-hmm. really a jazz fanatic, right, David? You know, and he's, now a, he's a terrific. He's on. a terrific yeah. musician. Yeah, he is. Well, they're, they're mm-hmm. all different ways of doing things. Pharaoh Sanders used to be he he was when he first came to New York. They called him Little Rock because that's where he was from. And he became like a giant. I remember he came and sat right. in with us in the, with our group in the 1960s. And boy, I loved the way he played. He just had something special feeling. I guess there's yeah. no way he could describe it. It was he was telling his story. And there's so many people like that. I just did a program at the New School with Hugh Reagan, a great trumpet player who's played with oh, wow. Roscoe Mitchell and all those people. And all these kids in their literally teenagers or in their 20s were, were studying jazz and all of them could play all this stuff that was so hard mm-hmm. to they, they could zip right through it so they had that ability to do that but they also could improvise up a storm in ways that I never imagined I said hey are these 20 year old kids more advanced than most of us are still trying to catch up with what we were brought up, you know, still trying to catch up with Charlie Parker and Coltrane. And here were these kids, they were already in another place, and they had their own stuff too. And I've seen this not only in the U.S., but in Europe. I did a whole program in Karlsruhe where they did all my classical and chamber music, and then I did a jazz concert, and they had all these German jazz musicians, and every one of them could play up a storm, and they also... (laughs) had gone to conservatories and, and were able to write symphonies. People wow. don't know Tito Puente had been at Juilliard. He could actually sit down and write a symphony, but he didn't bother to. He had his band, and he didn't mm-hmm. need to do that. But so many of the people in the in the 30s and 40s, you hear those fantastic arrangements like Chico O'Farrell and Mario Bowser and those people, that was some amazingly sophisticated Music and people use the schooling and the technical stuff as a toolbox for creativity. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't saying yeah, if you do yeah. one thing, you can't you can't do anything else. And just like as in in, in the ballet, if you were a ballerina, so much of the great things in, in classical dance come from that totally. genius of folk art. I just wrote a piece called Bulgarian Wedding for a for uh, French horn and violin because the violin wow. is from mm-hmm. Bulgaria mm-hmm. and her husband said you know, who plays said you know you should do something and you, so in the process of trying to use Bulgarian music and I went on YouTube I saw some of that dancing my lord mm-hmm. just the dancing Amazing, and then huh? you see that and then you see the Macedonian dancing and the Romanian dancing and the Turkish dancing, and they're all sort yeah. of related, but they're all different. And each one has its own very, very special. And when I was in Sri Lanka and saw the dancing, and saw the dancing elephants and the way people would dance mm-hmm. with the elephants, I mean, incredible, wow. sophisticated, oh, cultured, yeah. no, beautiful no, no, stuff. Definitely. No, yeah, so absolutely, and you know, so, it's so funny because I studied with um, we we won't even talk about it, but Ukrainian. <laughs> it was, I'm part Ukrainian, so it was like, 
um, we did a lot of the Ukrainian, and I had a Ukrainian teacher, so a lot of it was very, Ooh. very strenuous. So you know what I wanted to mention to you? Your yeah, pronunciation the, the of, of different different words. You speak how many other languages, David? Well, I'm still struggling with English, and I learned Spanish. <laughs> and I told Ray Mantillo for the Democratic Convention, I was at the University of, of Denver, and I was chosen to be the composer in residence for that for that that time for the, by the the library. Thanks to a Dr. Mm-hmm. Audrey Springer who was running out. I, I, and I was the. So I, they said, oh, well, you have to do a program in English and Spanish. So I called up Ray Mantillo, a wonderful Congo player mm-hmm. in New York, whom I played with for years. I said, Ray, I'm doing mm-hmm. a program, a bilingual program. And he said, quote, he said, man, he said, your Spanish is cool, but how them kids going to understand your English? With a New York accent, so it's all it's all relative. And when I used to speak French with Jack Kerouac, when I play back when I saw Canadian, one speaks mm-hmm. with a Canadian accent. But in high French, they all parle back when I saw Canadian. So a lot of people who who were used to hearing the Français propre when they heard Jack with his Lowell, Massachusetts, Quebecois style. And mine with my mm-hmm. Philadelphia Sephardic Polish bebop style were horrified. <laughs> but That's Jack right. explained, and I agreed. He said, all the different ways of speaking a language are all correct because each of them mm-hmm. reflects a cultural history and a background and a way of doing it. So mm, you always you know. try to learn the most proper grammatic way. And the other languages that I've learned, I try to to hear. And then the more that you know the language, you know, you go to a different place. And boy, mm-hmm. you could be 10 miles away, mm-hmm. and they speak differently. And right. all yeah. through the U.S., the different totally. ways that you speak, mm-hmm. speak mm-hmm. are all proper. So someone says... It's really a pleasure to meet you. And then you go to New York and say, hey, what's up? It's all the same. It's all basically, it's just a different, a different form of, of hospitality or a different form of expressing the same thing. So languages yeah, well, You're really, very well, well versed. You yeah, are. And that's the same, same thing in, in just about every language. And the good thing is you never really get anything right, so you're constantly studying. And my son-in-law is from mm-hmm. Holland. He speaks five languages. And I wow. said, Brahman, oh, wow. you speak all those languages so well. He was mm. insulted. He said, not really. He said, where I'm from, you speak at least five, usually more. In other words, mm. that was as if I was saying, gee, Brahm, it's amazing. You can eat with mm-hmm. a spoon. But to him, that was a given. So when we're told mm-hmm. if you can't speak American, you can't speak nothing, that's only because we're programmed, colonized to think that if you speak English, more or less, that you're genetically incapable of learning another language. And right. conversely, mm-hmm. if you if you like one kind of music, you can't appreciate other kinds of music. Right. 
That's or if so you do true. once. That's true. That's, that's really so true. true. You know, I, and that doesn't mean you can do everything well, but at least you can appreciate mm-hmm. that things are connected. And if you struggle and fumble with something, it'll come back to one that you do the best you can find more richness and development in. So if you if you speak mm-hmm. English and you learn other languages, when you go back to English, you can find all kinds of things in the language and the way other people speak the language that you wouldn't have noticed before. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. That and is it's the very, same thing very true. That's very true. You know, that's why I love playing those folk festivals. Boy, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm at, sometimes you at Okima, they have this wonderful Woody Festival. We're out in the parking lot at 5 in the mm-hmm. morning, and you hear somebody, oh, wow. some some genius, <laughs> I mean, playing somebody who's just so beautiful. You say, wow. Uh-huh. And I always flash back to Odetta, the great singer. She said, David, as you know, I started out <laughs> as an opera singer, but whatever genre you work in, folk <laughs> is the root of the tree. Wow. And that's the that's the truth. Wow. And, and, and folk doesn't doesn't mean the the cliche of the folk boom of mm. Michael rode the boat ashore and nothing else exists, but just that mm-hmm. there's that song is one of millions that's just so so beautiful, and that everybody has their own own folkloric music and everybody has their own heritage. Yeah. Everybody has their own history and their own way of cooking and their own mm-hmm. way of dealing with other people. Right. And it's all precious. And a David, lot to learn. Did you, David, did you meet Bob Dylan? Oh, sure. We just talked about that, where he was playing with them. Remember? Yeah. He he Remember was a, 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 yeah. and remains amazing. You know, he still writes songs and he goes and he makes people happy and goes all around the world still doing what he loves to do. And his mm-hmm. books, I love his book, Chronicles. And yeah, that's the, great. The Chronicles books that he's is written great, are, yeah. And yeah. also the speech the speech that he gave when he he was describing his songs and how the folk roots uh, enabled him to write songs that he might not. He said he would mention a famous song of his and say, now and then he mentioned the famous old folk song. He said, "Without that folk song, there never would have been my song." He's he's like a a real scholar as yep. well of, of of American roots music. And there's so many other fantastic folks folk artists. And I just played last night at a, at a little benefit concert up here, and there, I was just amazed by how good all these people were. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just a, a thrill to see that so many, so many of these kinds of musics are being appreciated. And now that mm-hmm. uh, they have at, at Berkeley School, which is a great place for sophisticated Absolutely. jazz, they they yeah. have a rich music program. And this in, in, incredible violinist is, is teaching roots music, and he gets classical and jazz violins and string players to come and study Appalachian music with him as a language, as a way of playing, not, not to give up whatever they do and do that, but to, but to expand their vocabulary by, by being able to do that. So it's, it's real exciting time to see that a lot of the people in music are not saying, and, and we're finally getting past the idea of, when I was 
called after being considered to be a nutcase, a pioneer of world music. I said, <laughs> when Dizzy Gillespie came to my basement apartment in yeah. 1951 and told me about Pan-African music, and I didn't even know where Africa was. All I knew was I see Tarzan movies and, and – uh, you know, I didn't know anything about any, anything. <laughs> he was explaining to me, first of all, Africa was a continent, not a country. And secondly, that every place that the African people went, they brought something. And when they left there in their journey, they took something with them to the next place. And how all this music kept mm-hmm. evolving. Yeah, David, I've I got to bring up something see historically, the, going back to Bob Dylan. And then Dylan, they said, um, if, I just, if I just finish, oh, that there was, then they said I was a fusion. I said, playing chopsticks on the piano is fusion because <laughs> you've got one finger on one hand, one finger on the other hand, and they're playing different directions. That's already right. fusion. Music is all about putting things together, like making a great meal out of whatever is available in the icebox. And using that as a recipe if you're, so you don't go hungry. And secondly, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as crossover because there's nothing to cross over to in the land of beauty. You're already there. And if you take a bridge, you're only going to a different part in that land of beauty. So right. I, I only mention that because the idea of trying to brand stuff and label stuff is okay if if you're – out on the street and you're trying to get rid of some hot jewelry or, or a television set with no tubes inside. But for something of, of a little more significance and lasting value, wow. that, that you could forget about the labels and think mm-hmm. about the content. Uh, I got David, mm-hmm. I got to bring up something. Um, going back to Dylan, uh, a very important point. Um, when Dylan went from acoustic to electric, as you well know, Everybody went nuts, right? And I think, in my own opinion, and I wanted to know your opinion, I thought that was brilliant because you expand as a musician, as you did. You know, you go from one thing into another. And um, Well, Picasso had a blue period and a, and a different cubistic period. He did a lot of different things, and they're all part of his work. And, and Dylan really wanted to be a rock player. He wanted to be exactly what he is. And right. that was and, and the folk music. He even was brave enough to say in one of his later interviews that he did the folk music because he figured that would make him go over, and that's what people wanted to hear, and that's mm-hmm. how we got in the door. And he was wonderful at that too. Yeah. And in his first record, he he only did two of his own songs, and it turned out he was such a wonderful songwriter, and a lot of other people appreciated what he did. And he was one of, of many, Leonard Cohen and Phil Oaks and, and uh, Cal and uh, Rick Esther, Von Schmidt, record. David, Rick Von Schmidt. Also terrific. There's a whole yeah. army of, of them and people like Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson and all the country. Absolutely. And, and yep. Danny Hathaway and all the, all the great, all the, the great uh, songwriters and, and all, you know, the whole history of, of the founders of, of rock and roll, B.B. King and the Platters, the Flamingos, the Coasters, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Little yeah. Richard. They were like fantastic. And the Cadillacs and all these great originals. Yeah. And Dion. All these. There's an army of people. And I love those television programs when they show greatest hits of the 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you only yeah. see 35 seconds. And you say, oh, man, I remember that. Oh, yeah. A song that's. 
that's a terrific thing to see the wealth, the wealth of amazing music that All we have. All the different types of yeah. genres, yeah. Did you meet Neil just, Young David, I, at all? I, I saw this movie the Did other day. Did you meet Neil Young at all any time? Oh, he's, yeah, I just saw him. He was at Farm Aid. He and, and Willie and, and uh, Dave Matthews and, and John Mellencamp were kind of are the 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 fa- founders. Or the, the, and mm-hmm. they get all these other people, Jamie Johnson and Margot. God, I can't Bonnie Ray. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were all so Bonnie terrific. Ray. Yeah. And then they had some younger people that no one ever heard of who were like monstrous good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Willie's two sons, they're both terrific musicians. I played, in fact, that when I played Fineman, I played with both of them, one on Mika on his set, and then his older brother, who's a killer singer and guitar player. We all played with Willie together at the end. And, and it was just thrilling to see on that level with 32,000 mm-hmm. people. It was just like yeah. being in a living room because everybody was really about the music. Just, just wonderful to see that, mm-hmm. and to see that 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 the whole event was for the family farmers. It wasn't an event where you go and say, "I wonder what this is supposed to be for." <laughs> Nobody was out there hustling. They were we all know it's there be- Yeah, all there because everybody was thinking about keeping the family farms alive somehow, so that we could have the good right. food. And the good values that family farmers have, not only for farming, but for their families and for be, being productive members of society. It was, it was a, so I feel really blessed that I'm able to be part of any of those things. Mm-hmm. And then I try to bring that with me into whatever I'm doing at the moment. And that, that's important. Oh, that's mm-hmm. Great. Well, Spencer, you know what I wanted to ask? before we end our show is um, what uh, you're currently working on, David, and uh, we know that you're going to be working on that book oh, soon. The book? Yeah, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing my <laughs> next book. I was nine. I was nine. I've written three books already, Vibrations, and Offbeat mm-hmm. Collaborating with Kerouac, and then mm-hmm. Nine Lives of a Musical Cat. And my fourth book mm-hmm. was supposed to be David Amram, The First 80 Years, and Larry Crennan made mm-hmm. a wonderful documentary film about that. But I was well, so busy, I never got to get it done on time. And my publisher, bless his heart, uh, uh, finally sold his company and is now working with Routledge, which, again, is another miracle, one of the biggest companies in the world. And mm-hmm. they agreed to mm-hmm. put the fourth book out. But well. since it's nine years late, he said, why don't you make it, instead of David Amram the first 80 years, make it David Amram the next 80 years? He said, then you'll, you'll, oh, you'll, wow. you'll be able to get to till you're 160. But he yeah, said, in exactly. case you don't yep. make it, he said, just having the time. So I'm, yep. I'm, I'm, ending, I'm starting it on my 80th birthday, which would be the next 80 years, where I happen to be with this by uh, amazing coincidence, which everything else in life is, is as well with the wonderful uh, symphony in San Antonio, and Ken Rodnowski was playing my saxophone concerto, Ode to Lord Buckley, which I written in memory of Lord Buckley, whom I knew and played with. And uh, it mm-hmm. starts there, and then I'm going to end it on my 90th birthday and then say to be continued at a later date. <laughs> That's so, so, so your I, birthday I have, is I have, November, right? Yes, November 17th. 
and and there's already yeah, you, they're home playing. So you're the whole, a Scorpio. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm what they Scorpio. call in the book Scorpio with esophagus rising. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, that's, and and uh, that's I'm also perfect. I'm writing a, a piece called Global Suite for Winds, Brass, and Percussion, and they're going to premiere the first movement at Harvard October 11th. Wow. And I'm on the, I'm going to go to the dress rehearsal October 10th, and that because that night I have to play in Lowell for Lowell Sobers Kerouac, and I'm also uh, doing a piece called Voyages for unaccompanied violin for Elmira Dadovarova, the wonderful violinist who she was the first woman concertmaster in the Met, and then I'll be starting on another orchestral piece. Wow! And I'm also playing with my with my Wow. My jazz quartet in, in concerts. I'll be I'll be playing in Los Angeles at a place called Beyond the Baroque, and then mm-hmm. at a place called Zebulon, which is a wonderful music place in West Hollywood, where my my daughter lives and the owners nice from France and they, Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so doing and I'm doing a lot of other stuff too, but it's really wonderful because every time I get up in the morning. Whatever it is I'm supposed to do, I really look forward to it. So I don't have to feel wow. bummed out that I'm grinding out something that I hate doing or I wish I was had gone to dental school. <laughs> dental and I told school. my dentist that. I said, I, I used to tell my kids when I'm 90, if I don't hit it, I'm going to go to dental school. But he said, well, no. He said, I think you'd make a very good dentist. And he said, I can get you into NYU dental school. He said, then by the time you graduate, oh, funny. I'll be I'll be oh, I'll be selling my practice and you can start out. I said, well, you know, I think maybe I better <laughs> I better stick to music because I'm not well. sure I would have the skills. Uh, in fact, I know I wouldn't. You know, because Dennis is like Yasha Haifa's playing the Beethoven violin concerto. You can't you can't fake it or call for say take two. <laughs> You got to get it the first time. Gotta you got to do it. You got know, to do it right the first one yeah, take only. So, I I admire anybody that can do anything, anything that that well. Mm-hmm. And I I just hope you know that I can also encourage other younger people to to dare to go for the goals. Yep. yep, go for it. That's fantastic. Well, you know, we have a song that we're ending with today called The Theme. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the theme? It's Manchurian, oh, yeah, that, that, the candidate. That, that, that was the theme for the Manchurian candidate. And I think they ended mm-hmm. up not, they ended up not using this in the film. But a great saxophone player. And this player is the jazz Carol, version. Yeah. yeah, that was the jazz version. And uh, I, I conducted it and played the piano. And Harold Land was this magnificent tenor player, and he was playing with Max Roach and Clifford Brown's group before Sonny mm-hmm. Rollins played. And I knew him in, in New York, and he said, you know, he didn't want to go on the road 50 weeks a year, so he went back to California. Great player. And when I did the first film I did out there called The Young Savages, I had him play, and, and Harold hecked who was the big producer. I wrote a whole chapter about him in my first book, but I used a different name, so mm-hmm. it would be abusive to him. But he said, you can't use that. Nobody ever heard of him. And I got my concert. Every, everything I, I did, fortunately, I was only 29, so I just kept 
doing on the director, John Frankenheimer's stayed behind me. So I was able to do what I wanted to. And they had this famous comp- composer lurking about the whole time. I thought, geez, what an honor. Here I am, a 29-year-old Mr. Nobody from New York. And they got this famous guy coming to all my recording sessions. He must really dig my music. The concert, one of the people in the orchestra said, no, that's standard procedure. They always bring somebody around so that when they fire you, the person knows what the film was about. So they, they ended up, they didn't have to do that. Oh, that's so funny. So finally, when they heard Harold Lamb play, they realized how great he was. They said, where's this guy from? I said, he lives two blocks mm-hmm. from here. So... How, I thought, well, I'd like to do the Manchurian Candidate after using the same orchestration, same harmonies, but make a jazz version just in case we could use it in the film. So now they use it to uh, as, a, as a piece of music by itself. And, and Harold's playing is just spectacular. And the, we had a wonderful, wonderful orchestra. And the symphonic version, well. the, the Mm-hmm. Soundtrack just came out in, in England on a five CD box set 59 years later, but this is the no, 57 years later, excuse me. This was done in 1962. And it's the, it's the theme from the 1962 film, The Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. And it was a pleasure. Where did you record you this one? We recorded that Where right in Hollywood. It was, oh, in, in Hollywood, California. And it was mm-hmm. a joy. They had about one minute sound check. That was mm-hmm. it. Everybody there could rescore <laughs> wow. it. All the engineers knew what was happening. It was wow. amazing. It was. The, everybody was well, so it good. Is. Yep. And it's a beautiful piece of music. And I wanted to say to everyone um, listening that you need to really listen to this. It's beautiful. And Spencer, did you have any more questions that you wanted to ask? Well, the only the only question I had was Gene Krupa, David. Yeah. Uh, did you ever meet Gene Krupa? Oh yeah, he was he was he used to play, believe it or not, at the Metropole. Wow. In, in New York City. Wow. Towards the end of his life, he was fantastic and a wonderful guy and a, yeah. and a great drummer. And Amazing. it was all when he and we ended up, you know, being in Hollywood movies and everything. It never affected his beautiful nature of just being mm-hmm. such a regular person with and to every musician who crossed his path, you know, or every mm-hmm. person. And especially any any young musician, instead of snubbing them or being nasty or he would he would go out of his way to to try to encourage you. Mm. Les Paul was that way too. At the end of his life, he used to play at the Iridium. Absolutely. Yeah. A night, he would stay over there for an hour afterwards. And any guitar player said, "How do you play a G7?" He would, mm-hmm. you know, give him a lesson. You know, yeah. these people yeah. love music. I did an and, interview and, with his family um, last oh, year uh, with Les Paul's oh, family. That was his, fun. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was so amazing. I, the I, stories I that I Les heard. Paul. I met uh, David. I met Les Paul at the Iridium. And he, at his birthday party, he had a, one of his birthday parties, mm-hmm. and he always had an incredible uh, people around him, musicians, right? An incredible lineup, yeah. Yeah. You know what there I was wanted so many, to say? I, I, um, Charlie Parker was that way, and you hear the Fortunately, yeah. there's a wonderful interview with him, interviewed mm-hmm. by Paul Desmond, when Paul was, was just beginning, more or less, and interviewed oh, wow. him in Boston. 
And oh. you could just hear his voice. He was so articulate and so nice oh. and so warm. Oh, my and, God. And Dizzy was, was just that way. And Jimmy Metropolis, whom I dedicated my book to, the great conductor. There's a lot of terrific people out there that I've been blessed to know that were good role models of how you, you hoped you might become if you if you used them mm-hmm. as an example. So I, w- I was very fortunate to be around some people that really had Civilization 101 with them every second. Uh, you know something, Holly? I'm afraid to bring up a name because I think David's met everybody in music history. That's like not, you. You've met everybody like in music you and history, I. David. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's it, it's it's like I wanted to say also to David, I wanted to thank him for being on the show, and I wanted to thank you, Spencer, for bringing David on. And oh, you know, you. Uh, Spencer, you know, you Spencer is in uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and has done many album covers and uh, permanent collections, and is getting ready to do a vinyl show, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Which we're going to feature, and oh, uh, I wanted to thank everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And also let everyone know it's Friday. Please do not drink and drive. And uh, <laughs> oh, I have, how can I say that on harvest? It's it's harvest time here in Sonoma, so everyone is like out doing the crush. Okay, last weekend was busting <laughs> of the grapes, and everybody was doing the grape stomp. So. I mean, you know, I'm real, it's so I have, to, I have to laugh because it's so beautiful up here right now with all the trees changing and, um, you know, all the different things. Plus, um, we're going to say major prayers for Sonoma and the surrounding areas because we're entering we've entered into fire season and we know oh, wow. how that went down a couple of years ago. Oh, but yeah. um Good. We have a red flag warning starting Sunday, and uh, I'm just going to say lots of prayers for everyone out there, and uh, just make sure you look at your alerts on your uh, phone um, during all these festivities. But, David, it is beautiful up here right now with the with the Harvest Festival. Um, all the grapes have been harvested, most of them, and they're doing oh, the crush wow. where they actually yeah. process the grapes and... Um, they're getting ready to put them in their barrels and lots Ooh, of really wow. amazing farm-to-table oh. food up here right now, um, Spencer. And so, hey, listen, David, <laughs> look at Holly's photographs on Instagram. Right, Holly? You do you photographs <laughs> of the, your photographs of all of the, the vineyards and, the, and stuff. And everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to I ask you one fast question, pictures. Holly, because yeah. wasn't there, a, wasn't there a, a, a jazz festival there, too? There was. In and I just recently, I think, yes, and I just recently Bruce, wanted to Bruce, create a, another one. Yeah, yeah a blues one. Bruce, 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 Bruce Hopewell, I think, was yeah. one of the people that helped, helped to start that. And I knew him. He, he was a good. He was from Eastern Pennsylvania, same hometown as Larry yep. Holmes, and he was mm. a good friend of mm-hmm. where he came to Brooklyn during the world after World War Two and with the new Randy Weston and Max Roach and all those monster mm-hmm. great players who who were from that Brooklyn area. I knew Bruce very well and, and, that's, and his wife. That's a great uh, coincidence. 
Yeah, wow, and, uh, Bruce, I know who you're talking Bruce, about. Oh my God! Yeah, he, he was right. he was an amazing amazing person and, and brought the great Kenny Burrell out there to do some programs and yep. a lot of the wonderful wow. artists. Yeah, that's wow. that's an a, a, know, amazing part of the country. It's a good hookup. It is, and you know who we've had on our show a couple times is um, Ron Apria and his wife Angela De Niro. Do you know them? Not personally, I know of them. Yeah, they're terrific. Yeah, Ron's a great saxophone player, and Angela is just a great bossa nova type uh, singer. She's she does she just she can sing it. Let me tell you. So we've got a lot of that too going on in the area. There's just always there's always music here in this area, which is kind of cool. Could you imagine going out in the middle of the night and just listen, hearing yeah. someone wailing away in the middle of the vineyards wow. on their uh, saxophones and stuff? I mean, that's what's going and, and on for, here. For, for, so, further down the line, more or less in that part of the country, is yeah. further away was 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 the the sons of the San Joaquim. I worked for them. We yep. did a concert, and they were they were both ranchers, ministers, and professional baseball yep. players, and were wow. I was great at all of them. And they had a group. We did something with the Colorado Spring Symphony. Don Edwards, the mm-hmm. champion yodeler, was there. Waddy Mitchell, the cowboy poet, and sons of the Sam Joaquim, and they were fantastic singers. Wow. Yeah. And the people in the symphony said, "Man, those these guys sing better in tune than anybody would have had." <laughs> singers. Well, and let me we tell you, this- they are the farmers here, and I mean, I'm at farm. I'm across the street. We've got cattle. We've got horses, vineyards. Oh boy! I mean, it's like it's like I'm surrounded by just you know a lot of growth and life, and you know, there's a lot of music up here, a lot of music, and uh, you brought up something really interesting. How people really. They're farmers, but they don't lose the whole crust of what they're really. They're very emotionally driven. There's a lot of writers up here, a lot of authors, and it's it's pretty amazing. And I noticed that you uh, were, you know, with your books and stuff, and I can't wait to see your book that you're going to be doing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly you're gonna right. You're going to do that book. So we're going to end our show with theme, um, the theme from the Manchurian Candidate. It's the jazz version. It's beautiful, Spence. You're going to love it. And to all our listeners listening, if you missed this show, yeah, just catch it on iTunes, download it, listen to it. What were you going to say, David? I'm sorry. Just if if your parents have kids and they want to play an instrument, tell them to practice and to do that. And the kids, if your parents used to play and they got some saxophone in the closet or buried, <laughs> tell them to get that out and play with you, and you'd be amazed what a good time you'll have. All right. Oh, there totally. And, en- I guess and encourage I, music education I guess and arts in, in, in the schools. And mm-hmm. uh, people say, well, the taxes are too high. If they cut out all education, no one could read and write, and they cut out the water and they cut out the police and the firemen and cut out road repairs, the taxes would still be too high. So if you're paying, mm-hmm. if you have arts education in the schools, you make better doctors, lawyers, people, and better parents and better citizens just mm-hmm. by studying the arts. So keep well, that public education going and don't allow yourself to be taken down someone else's drain. All right. 
so in true. Words. That's beautiful. In words. David, thank you so much for being here today. It really means a lot to both of us. Well, I thank and I look forward um, to seeing you if you if you when you come to here at the symphony again. Spencer, I'll yeah, probably see you in, in, in Nueva, Nueva York, yeah. I hope. In Nueva York, my friend. Yeah. All right. And, uh, David, we would love to have you back on um, when you're on your next project and you're starting your book and stuff like that. You're very sweet, and we would definitely love to talk to you again because you were a fantastic interview. I think this was a great interview. What do you think, Spence? Unbelievable. (laughs) It's it's a topper, Ali, a topper. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for getting me out of my shell. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you're so cute. Out of yourself, David. I don't think you're in a shell. I think you're I out think right, there right, making right, shells. Right. You're out there making the shells for people to get into. Okay. All right. Yeah. You're a good guy. So with that, you guys, here we go. Welcome. Go into the Friday again. Um, you know, don't drink and drive. And enjoy yourself and be aware of your surroundings at all times, okay? Right yep. now. Yes, ma'am. Okay? Here you guys go. We'll see you. Okay. Bye-bye. Yep. Beautiful music here, you guys.
Thank mm-hmm. you. 